Good morning and welcome to North Shore Alliance Church Online. We invite you to join us in worshiping the living God with us. same God that never fails will not fail me now. You won't fail me now in the waiting. The same God who's never late is working all things out. You're working all things out. Good morning, church. Thank you for joining with us in worship. My name is Adam. I'm one of the interns here at North Shore Alliance Church. And what a joy to join with you today, if not in the physical, then over the online and joining together with you in spirit as we worship our God who is living, present, and so very active among us. I love that about worship. As we speak these words together, uh, we remember that he is with us and we are not alone. And that's a really powerful message for us, especially now as we're separated uh, from each other, that God is with us. Perhaps right now you are feeling rather lonely. Perhaps you're at home watching this live stream, unable to come into the church because of the COVID-19 regulations, or perhaps you weren't able to connect with family and friends this week because of those same regulations. In all areas of life, if you're feeling lonely, I, I pray for you as we head back into worship that you would know that God is with you. He is so very near. 
Before I hand it back over to Paul and the worship team, I do want to read for you one God story uh, that we've collected from, from you, our congregation. One of our congregants sent it to us. Now, these God stories, we've been reading them a few times. I'm just bringing it up on my phone. We've been reading a few of these God stories the past few weeks, and uh, we've been collecting them from you. They really are just testaments to how God is present and active in our midst, even during these times right now. So this is from one of our congregants a couple months ago. She mentioned how she had been in a really tough valley for a while. She'd experienced a traumatic experience a couple years previous, and then been diagnosed with depression and several chronic diseases. So it was a low point a couple months ago. COVID-19 didn't make it any better. And yet God spoke to her in her valley. God was with her in this darkness. She writes that Paula Sampang, many of you will know Paula, reached out to her one morning two months ago. And over the phone, Paula sat with her, listened to her story, listened to the pain that she was experiencing, prayed with her, and offered to go and buy groceries for her. Uh, she's part of, Paula was part of NSA's grocery plan, where we go and buy groceries for different members of, of our church. And this congregant mentions how that phone call just made such a huge difference in her life. I want to read now from the letter. She says, I was feeling so lonely and uncertain as to how I could possibly navigate the challenges of life. But this morning, the call from Paula was like a call from an angel. Beautiful. God speaks to us and he is with us in our deep and dark valleys. So I'm going to hand it back over to Paul and the worship team now. And I pray that as we do worship together, you would have an experience of entering into his throne room and being with the heavenly father who knows you and is with you intimately. Thanks, Adam. Speaking of the throne room, as we gather in our homes to worship this morning, I invite you to look to the holy God who is majestic in holiness. I'll be reading from Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two wings their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah sees the majesty and holiness of God and recognizes that he is unworthy in the presence of this great God. But the following verses, we see God purifying Isaiah, taking away his guilt and his sin. God has made a way for us through Jesus's death and resurrection to be before him. That while we were still sinners, while we were unworthy, God has made a way. We are about to sing the song here for you. And may this be a prayer for you this morning that you might be open, have a posture of availability to God this morning and that he would have work his way in you. There's a line that says, God, let your fire fall down. And I remember reading one comment last week during our service. Someone imagined little Holy Spirit fires all over the North Shore. And fire is often seen in scriptures as representing God's presence among his people. So as we sing this song, as we worship this morning, let's invite God to do something new in our hearts and in our homes today, and that he would show us the splendor of his majesty, and that he would fill us afresh this morning. I invite you to join in song with us. praise be your welcome and let our songs be a sign we are here for you we are here for you 
the glory consumes like fire What other power can raise the dead What other name remains
joy to worship with you all this morning. Now, if you'll join me in prayer, let us pray to our holy God together. Almighty God, glorious and loving Father, we praise you, we adore you because you are holy. God, we pray that as Marty speaks today, you would give us a vision of your holiness as Paul read that passage earlier from Isaiah, that passage that speaks of your throne room, of the living creatures around you that that cry out, holy, holy, holy are you. Give us a vision of that, of the light that you clothe yourself with, of the glorious splendor all around you, of your beauty and majesty. We adore you, Holy Father. And we also adore you, Father, because your holiness doesn't stop there. Your holiness moves out from the throne room. We praise you, Jesus, because you came to us. You knelt in the dirt with us. You wrote our names in your heart. You are the holy God who makes his people holy. You bore our pain with us, wiped away our tears, and... Most fundamentally, you, you bore our sin, our failure on your shoulders so that we might walk free. Thank you, holy God, for making us, your people, holy.
and free. And Spirit, we want to take a moment now to confess all the ways this week that we have strayed from your holiness. We have strayed from your calling to be a holy people. Lord, we bring to you those places in our life this past week where we have been frustrated and angry with our brothers and sisters, with our neighbors. Those places where we've been lustful, we've been envious, we've been proud and prideful. How we bring all these to you. I invite you, church, just to take a moment and confess to him the sins, the places where we have strayed from his holiness. And now we take these things and we lay them at the foot of your cross. Jesus, thank you that you are the forgiving God, that your mercies are renewed every day. And that we are free of all the sins that have come to mind. Spirit, I pray you just touch everyone's heart who's on this, this uh, watching this video right now and everyone who's in this room and remind us that you have freed us from the weight of sin. We praise you, Spirit. And finally, Lord, we want to petition you. We come to you with things that are on our hearts and we pray that you would intervene in our lives and you'd intervene in this world. You see the pain around the globe right now, God. And we pray that you would intervene and show your mighty hand and show your holiness. First of all, we want to lift up COVID to you, God, this global situation, the thousands of people around the world who are affected by it, millions, all of us are affected by it in some way, God. We pray for specifically for those who have been diagnosed with a disease. Be their refuge. Be their strength. We pray for healing in their bodies. We pray that you would stop miraculously the spread of this disease. Please be with your people, Lord, and bring us physical healing, God. Bring, bring your people physical healing. And God, we also pray for the political situation in the world right now. You see the chaos around us. And I love that scripture that says you are seated above the flood. You are seated over and above the chaos. You are the unchanging one. We pray you'd step into the chaos as you already have done in the person of Jesus. Intervene and bring peace. We pray for the U.S. and all of the political upheaval, the riots that are going on right now down there. And more than that, the centuries of injustice that has been revealed right now. And more than that, the millennia, the whole of human history where we have been oppressing each other, We've been oppressing our brothers and sisters. God, we ask for mercy for our species. And we pray that you would intervene and bring peace to this world. True peace, not silence, not a return to the status quo, but true peace and reconciliation, true healing of relationship. You are the only one who can do this, oh, holy God, and we lay this before you. And finally, God, I just want to pray for Marty's sermon. I pray you would use her words to speak to your people, speak to us, convict us where we need to be convicted, comfort us when we need to be comforted, come and move us, Lord. So I pray you would anoint her just specifically for this, this sermon today, God, and please speak through her and move our hearts. We praise you, Jesus, for your holiness, and we praise you for your nearness. In your name, amen. I have only one announcement for you all before I turn it over to Marty for the sermon. And that is that, God willing, we will hopefully be opening our doors next Sunday, June 14th, for some in-person services, some in-person gatherings. So that'd be June 14th that we hope to be putting that forward. Now, a few things I want to say about these in-person services. First, heavy emphasis on the God willing uh, part of this. There are still a few hurdles that uh, the team at NSA has to jump over in order to put forward in-person services. So we ask for your patience with that. We're hoping June 14th, but it may be a couple weeks in the future that we're able to offer these, these services in person. Second thing that I want to say about this is that we recognize some of you are not comfortable, won't be comfortable with coming into the church for these in-person services. And that is totally okay. We do not expect that you come into these services, even if we offer them in person. 
this video uh, streaming that you're watching right now will still be available. We'll be video recording all the services and posting them online so you can watch them that way. The Zoom services that we put forward as a church will still be happening as well. So there will be a couple different avenues that you can watch the service without coming in in person. And then the last thing I want to say on this is that we will be abiding by all of the BC regulations as we put forward these in-person services. So we uh, will be having 50 people in the sanctuary and all social distancing will apply, sanitation measures, all of that will still, will still apply. So we are hoping to uphold everything. We will be upholding everything in order to make it a safe gathering. And if you have any questions on any of that, please contact the church at info at nsac.bc.ca and you can ask us those questions there. All right, without further ado, I want to turn it over to Marty for the sermon for today. Good morning. I don't know about you, but for me, there hasn't been a lot during this COVID season to be excited about. But one thing that made me slightly excited was to find out there's going to be a fifth Indiana Jones film filmed soon. And I like Indiana Jones. I've watched the movie since I was in high school. But the one that stands out to me the most is the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, how many of you have seen that? Anyone here? Yeah, it's a pretty good one. And... Um, it was the spring of 1936. Indy was in South America. He got himself into trouble, surprisingly enough, and traveled back to the U.S. When he got to the U.S., he was greeted by two army intelligence officers who told him about some worrisome action that the Nazis were doing in um, Africa. So in Egypt, they were excavating an archaeological site, and they described where it was to Indy. And Indy realized that that was the site that he believed the Ark of the Covenant was. And he was very frightened that the Nazis would get their hands on such a powerful object. So he rushed to Egypt. He went undercover to figure out a way to keep the Nazis from getting the Ark of the Covenant which if you remember from the Old Testament, was a holy object of God kept in the Holy of Holies that contained the Ten Commandments. When Indy gets there, of course, there's lots of skirmishes and fights and chases, but finally he, uh, the Ark of the Covenant is found and it's in the Nazis' possession. And so this is my favorite scene. This is the climax of the film where the Nazis open the Ark. And so as they open the Ark, you see the cruel Nazi leader and the awe and horror on his face as he looks inside the ark and he sees a power greater than himself. And his face begins to melt in the presence of the holy. Now, there's really bad graphics for, from 40 years ago, so it kind of is weird to see those graphics. But And the movie doesn't necessarily get it right. They don't get what the power of the ark is. Um, but there is something in this movie that demonstrates what happens when sinful humanity meets holy other. And this morning, we're going to be talking about holiness, God's holiness, and how it impacts us. In, in 1 Samuel 2, verse 2, Hannah, the mother of Samuel, prays out to God, and she says this, There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Let's pray together. God, you are the Holy One. You are a rock. You are the one we can depend on. You are unchanging. And I pray this morning as we look into your word and as we discover how you have revealed yourself to us, that you will enable us to understand your holiness and to respond to it. Amen. So I... Over the last few weeks, we've been trying to understand who God is and how God connects to us. We've looked at the Trinity as Father, Son, and Spirit. We've looked at God's goodness and God's love. And this morning, we're going to look at God's holiness. The word holy, the English word, comes from the English word wholeness. Now, holy is a strange and perhaps uncomfortable word in our culture. What do you think of when you hear the word holy? Usually it's pretty negative. Maybe you think of someone who's holier than thou or a holy roller, someone who's religious and weird, someone who likes to keep rules, someone who thinks that they're better than other people. 
But there's another way we use the word holy in our culture. It's used as an adjective to spice up another word, such as holy cow. And you can use this word holy to even spice up spicier words than cow, um, but I won't mention them this morning. But we use it in a way like, wow, I can't believe this. This is amazing or scary or surprising. It can be an expression of awe in our culture. And so when, when uh, we as humans see something that's amazing, we respond with this emotion of awe. It doesn't matter what it is. If it's something that stands out to us, like a beautiful sunset or objects of art, like the hush that I experienced when I stood before the statue of David in Florence or the Mona Lisa in the Louvre. This use of holy is somewhat approximate to the way the word holy is described is used to describe God in the Bible. God is awesome. God is majestic. He is bright and full of light. Think of Jesus at the transfiguration. Matthew describes that moment like this. He says that he, Jesus, when he was transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. A holy God is unique and splendid, without boundaries or limitations, transcendent. God is holy other, infinitely exalted above God's creation. Now, it's, in, it's difficult to uh, grasp this concept of infinite, but maybe it's like comparing the light of a little candle to the light of the sun. But even that isn't a good comparison because you can still measure the light of the sun. God is spirit. And as Pastor Dave said a couple of weeks ago, God is not safe. I've invited Judith Boyd right now to read a passage from Revelation 4. It's the time when the Apostle John saw a vision of Jesus in the heavens. And so I want you to close your eyes for a minute. And as Judith reads, imagine the scene that she's reading about. Okay, you guys will have to read that later. <laughs> okay. Holiness is God. God is holy, holy, holy. Wow. And in Isaiah 6, the passage Paul read, Isaiah encounters this holy God. He sees two seraphim, and these seraphim are singing something very similar to the four creatures in Revelation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, in ancient Hebrew, when you repeated something twice, it was for emphasis. It was important to pay attention to. But it's surprising to repeat something three times. Holy, holy, holy. An Old Testament professor, Walter Moberly, dis describes the effect of the these three holies being used side by side. He says, God is utterly, thoroughly, utterly, perfectly, utterly holy. This emphasis is like making the very definition of God holy. This is not just God's character. Holy is who God is. Now, the second way holy is used to describe God in the Bible is something that we may be more familiar with. God is, has moral perfection or moral integrity. He's absolutely pure and true and upright. God knows what is right and he does what is right. He is free from evil. God's behavior is consistent with his character. We'd never need to doubt that God is good. And God's holiness is practical. So in Isaiah, Isaiah spells it out this way. He says, the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice and the holy God will be, will be proved holy by his righteous acts. God acts according to God's holiness. Now, this is infinitely more than we can expect from most any human being, even the most outstanding human being. There may be humans that we're in awe of, maybe because they've got power or prestige or fame, but when we get close up to them, they're simply human. As the saying goes, they put their pants on one leg at a time. They have the same needs we do, the same vulnerabilities, the same fears. I don't know who you admire. Maybe it's Malala Yusuf. Maybe it's LeBron James or Bill Gates or Greta Thunberg. Maybe it's Queen Elizabeth II. They may be awe-inspiring from afar, but when you get up close, they're going to be just like you. And they are going to be flawed. But God is not like this. God is thoroughly holy, awe-inspiring, bright. He's set apart completely. This is good news for us. 
Um, God's holiness encompasses his majesty and his moral integrity. And according to the scriptures, God's holiness is evident for all to see. In Isaiah's vision, as the seraphim sing, holy, 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 they announce that the whole earth is full of God's glory. God's holiness is displayed through his glory, which is the demonstration of his attributes. Now, unfortunately, or fortunately, but truly, God's holiness separates God from his creation. So when Humanity encounters God, it is a fearful thing because they see themselves in light of who they see God to be. So let's return to Isaiah's vision of God. When Isaiah, who is a very holy man, sees God, he cries out. He says, woe to me, I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah sees himself in relation to God's holiness, God's majesty, God's perfection. And he sees his flaws, he sees his own inconsistency, and he recognizes that he has failed to live up to God's call on his life, that his people have failed to live up to God's call on their lives. When you look in the Bible and see what people's encounters with God are like, they're very much like Isaiah's encounter. When people meet God, they fear for their lives. They fall down to the ground. They cry out to God for mercy. It is a frightening thing to meet God. Even Moses, when he encountered God in the burning bush, he hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now, Isaiah and Moses are devoted followers of God. They were outstanding among the followers of God. And this is how they reacted when they saw God. So what happens when God's holiness encounters unholiness? Evil cannot be even be in the presence of the Holy One. It's utterly incompatible with his nature. And the, ra- the writers of the Raiders of the Lost Ark got this as the Nazi soldiers melted like wax. In 1 Samuel 6:19, the text describes 70 men who looked into the ark like, like the Nazis did, and they were thrown back and killed. Um, in, in the Jewish book, the Zohar, which perhaps dates from the first century AD, they describe a tradition of when the priest went into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, he had to be totally pure. But just in case he wasn't, they tied a rope around his legs. So he'd go in and if he fall down dead, they could pull him out and someone else could go in in his place. I'm not sure who would want to go next. In the New Testament, there was a story about a couple named Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit. It was very bad news for them. You can check that out in Acts 5. What is unclean cannot stand in the presence of holiness. Evil, sin, and corruption are incompatible with God. Habakkuk 1.13 says this, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrong. God's holiness is a dynamic energy that consumes and overwhelms those who experience it. And this is often referred to in the Bible as God's wrath. The Apostle Paul gives a stern warning in the book of Romans. He says this, he said, Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. That sounds pretty scary. And God's wrath is real and subjective power, and it's very different than human anger. So human anger is often an uncontrolled explosion. It's irrational, uh, but it's a reaction provoked by other people. But God's anger is the outworking of his holiness when it comes into contact with something that is not clean. It's the necessary reaction of a holy God against sin. Now, as the ancients thought about this, this made sense to them. But I think in the modern West, for the most part, we don't think of things or people or objects as unclean. And this seems like a very weird thing. So I'm going to use an illustration. So you're about to have some friends over for dinner and you put out all your nice dishes. You want to impress them. You cook a really nice meal. This is a beautiful bowl we have that we use for salad when people come over. I was going to bring it this morning, but I forgot it when I was leaving the house. So I have a lovely bowl from our kitchen to replace it. So your bowl is out on the counter, you're getting ready for dinner and your roommate, your spouse, your kid comes by. They look at this, they go, oh, it's really pretty. And they're like, oh, I'm not feeling so well. And they pick up your bowl and vomit in it. 
Look at my beautiful bowl. After that illustration, my husband said he'll never use it again. But um, what happens to the bowl? Your company's coming. Do you simply just wash out the bowl and put the salad in it? How many of us would do that? Probably not many of us. We just couldn't bring our, Adam, you would? We just couldn't bring ourselves to use the bowl probably ever again. It might just be like, this is now a beautiful object on my shelf. It will no longer have food. And so we get that concept of unclean. The bowl is used for something it was not intended for, something dirty, and it makes us feel icky. Um, and this is what what um, idolatry and sin do to a human. A human was made to worship God. A human was made to honor God. And when we use our bodies, our minds, our tongues in ways that were not in, they were not intended for, it makes us unclean. When we worship created things like money or status, that makes us unclean. Sin is like saying to God, I don't want to be like you. I would rather do it my own way. And when we're unclean, we can't be in the presence of a holy God because God's holiness and righteousness demand us to be holy and righteous as well. It's important to point out that the seriousness of our sin does not lie in its consequences. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that hating your brother is equivalent to murder, that looking at a woman with lust is equivalent to adultery. That's hard for us to fathom. The seriousness of our sin is not because it, uh, it hurts somebody else, but also because it's an assault on the dignity and majesty of God. If you remember the story of David and Bathsheba in the Bible, David has an affair with Bathsheba or takes advantage of her. This text is not clear. He kills her husband to cover up his sin. Um, and he thinks everything's okay the prophet Nathan comes to visit him and exposes his sin. And what Nathan says to David is he said, you have despised God. And that was David's sin. He said to God, I don't want to do it your way. I don't want to look to you. I want to do it my own way. So all sin creates uncleanness in us. It's an affront to God's majesty, his authority, and power. And again, in Romans, Paul says this. He says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Through nature, we can all see God's majesty. And through nature, we have all gone, I mean, not through nature, but in our humanness, we have all gone our own way. Last week, Pastor Brendan talked about God's love. And holiness and love are the quintessential attributes of God. Many would say that God's love is in conflict with God's holiness. Some people would say that God's holiness is more essential, and others would say God's love is more essential. But how do we pull those two apart? So some churches have said, well, we believe God is loving, and so we're going to reject this teaching about the holiness of God, especially the wrath of God. That's super bad. Um, Art Lindsay comments on this, and he says, it's easy to take God's grace for granted. Rather than assuming God's holiness and being amazed by his grace, we take for granted his grace and are amazed and offended by his holy wrath and judgment. It may sound like this. Christ didn't need to bear anyone's sins. Focusing on sins is negative. We don't really need the cross. God's love is the kind of love that embraces everybody no matter what. So that's one side, the love side. On the other side are the, those who focus on go, God's holiness. Now they're concerned about not breaking any laws. They're concerned uh, making sure nobody else breaks any laws, and they're not so interested in God's love. They promote a kind of legalism that's graceless. My mother-in-law grew up in this kind of church. She was seven years old, and she got invited to see Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs at the movie theater. So she heads off to the movie theater, and when she gets there, she's sitting down, the movie starts, and she starts feeling very, very guilty. How would a holy God, what would happen if God returned to earth and found her in a terrible place like a movie theater? Remember, she's watching Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And she feels so guilty, she runs out of the theater and does not return to a movie theater until her 60s. She grew up in a church with a lot of rules and not a lot of grace. Both of these sides, those who focus on God's holiness and those who focus on God's love, are missing, on, missing how God's love and holiness integrate and how they're both integral to God's essence. God is simultaneously good and loving and holy. 
So we never encounter God's love without his holiness, and his holiness is always accompanied by his loving tenderness. So we can speak about it this way. We can speak about God's holy love and his merciful holiness. Now, if we're serious about worshiping God as God has revealed himself to us, then we can't just have one side or the other. God doesn't come in two sides. These two things, holiness and love, exist in tension. A tender-hearted embrace of the sinner and a separateness from what is unclean and profane. God's love is always holy and his holiness always includes love. So how might this work? Think about God's love. God's love is set apart. It's different from everything we experience in creation. God's love is pure. It's majestic. It's sacred. It's love that goes way beyond the way any human could love. There's no selfishness in God's love. There's no wickedness. There's no sin mixed in. God will never take advantage of us. He will never use us. He will never abuse us. The love of God is in a class by itself. Again, think of the light of the candle versus the light of the sun. God's love is mediated to us, interestingly enough, by his Holy Spirit. In Romans 5, Paul writes, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And God's holiness, it's also shaped by God's love. Our loving God wants holiness, justice, and truth, and he wants a deep connection to us. God's wrath is a steady and unwavering commitment to uphold all that is good and loving and right, and as opposed to all that is dark and evil. So God's loving holiness gives us hope in a world where there's little justice, where there's no balancing of scales. There will be justice for George Floyd and others who have been treated horrifically. God's loving holiness will bring justice. So given that God is holy and we are sinful, how can we ever enter into God's presence? But God, our holy God, has good news for us, and this is grace. And again, grace is not just simply taking a very dirty bowl and saying, this bowl is clean. Uh, that doesn't work. That's the actual, the bowl actually needs to be thoroughly cleansed. And when humanity becomes unclean through sin, through idolatry, it can't just be declared clean. It actually has to be cleaned. And this kind of grace is costly for God. God's love and mercy come together in the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. In Jesus' life and death and resurrection, God provides a way to himself. His righteousness enables him to offer himself on behalf of humanity. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, and him is Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So God takes the retribution we deserve in the death of his son, Jesus. He takes it on himself. Jesus dies for our sin. The cross of Christ signifies both the satisfaction of God's holiness as well as the vastness of his love. Holiness and love meet on the cross. And the cross remind, reminds us as well that there is a time coming when justice will reign and where darkness will be forever removed. It will be a time of great joy. The entire universe will be holy and clean. And when this happens, people will rejoice. So just as God shares his love with us, he also wants to share his holiness with us. His holiness, God is the source of holiness and it's a gift of God to God's people. And holiness is is God's gift to us so that we can work out our salvation. In Isaiah 57, 15, Isaiah writes, For this is what the high and exalted one says, He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. It is God who makes people holy. And being made holy is both an event and a process. It's an event. When we come to faith, when we're born again, we are made holy. And this is symbolized in our baptism when we go underwater and are washed clean. This is what it means in the Bible to be saved. We're cleansed. Our our sins are forgiven. The slate is wiped clean. We are now holy. This is our position before God. But God also requires a response for from us. And so grace is not just costly for God. 
But grace is also costly for us because it requires us to change. The living God requires his people to respond to his holy love with love and obedience in return. In Hebrews 12, 14, the writer of Hebrews says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Becoming holy, like I said, is an event, but it's also progressive. And we sometimes call this sanctification or transformation. It's a little bit like marriage. So you get married, you make your vows, you're legally married, but it's only when you really live it out. You share love, you forgive, share forgiveness, you share all that you have, that marriage makes its way into us. And as we're reunited to Jesus through faith, the Spirit works in us and transforms us. And the writer of Hebrews talks about this tension. He says, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So we, as followers of Jesus, commit ourselves to a life of radical responsiveness to God, to God's love and accountability to God's holiness and justice. And, and God, through his Holy Spirit, reveals to us in a loving way our sinfulness um, and our uncleanness in this process of transformation. And the Holy Spirit continues to cleanse us and fill us and transform us into holy people. So what does a holy person look like? Pastor Tim Keller comments on this. He says, a holy person is someone who looks at God and does not say, just give me the rules and tell me what the rules are so I can get to it. No, a holy person is someone who says, I belong to you. I'm set apart from you. Our motive for being holy is not primarily to follow the rules and the laws, but to follow God. And following God is a daily choice we make. When we lose sight of God and God's holiness, we begin to feel comfortable sinning. In fact, the Apostle Paul goes so far to say this. He says, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. What happens for people is when we lose sight of God's grace and God's extravagant forgiveness, we begin to minimize and excuse our sin. But a holy per person is attentive to God. And the outcome of this is seen primarily in our relationships, our relationships of loving God and loving others. Again, as humans, we're inclined to look downward, we're inclined to look inward. Um, but as holy people, we're called to make a fundamental shift. We're called to look upward, and outward, upward towards God and outward towards other people. And to know God is to find liberation from that kind of self-preoccupation and to be become preoccupied with others. And for most of, most of us, this is a really hard thing to do. We often think of God and faith in terms of the benefits it'll give us. What might it do for our well-being? And often we're looking for someone to make us feel better rather than to make us better. We want to feel good, but not be good. We want to feel whole, but not be holy. But God, God's holiness calls us to face the sin in our life, not just so that we will feel better, but that we'll actually be in a better place. Take, for example, racism, which is rampant south of the border, but also in Canada. Miroslav Wolf, and this is a picture of him, is a theologian and author. He was born in the former Yugoslavia. He's very familiar with the toxicity of long-standing racism, which led to war in the Baltic states in the 90s. And Dr. Wolf proposes that racism comes from our prizing our own identity over others and not giving space for the identity of the other. He says that in doing this, in not, in not giving space for the other, it leads us to treat other people as subhuman. So how might holiness impact the way we treat others who are different than us? Dr. Volz challenges us. He says, as followers of Christ, a holy people, holiness joins us together. The Spirit makes us one. The Spirit enables us to see the other with the eyes of Jesus, who has fully embraced all of humanity, the fullness of humanity. So part of holiness is sharing in the joint humanity of the other. In Christ, there is no slave, no free, no Jew, no Greek, no male, no female. Holiness prioritizes protecting the most vulnerable among us, even if it costs us. God is not calling us to holy individuality 
over here, I'm holy by myself, but to holy community. In 1 Peter, we're reminded of this, that we are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Here are some things that will characterize the holy people who look upward and see God's holiness and act outward in the power in the power of the Spirit. So a, a community that's characterized by God's holiness will prioritize worship. They'll prioritize seeing God for who God really is. A, a holy community will exhibit a powerful love for God and for neighbors, neighbors who particularly might look and sound different than ourselves. A holy community will be made up of people from different cultures and nations. A holy people will dedicate ourselves to service in Jesus' name. We will not just aspire to a virtuous life or adhere to moral standards, but we'll dedicate ourselves to God. We'll dedicate our life um, which will exclude immorality and mediocrity, and it will include obedience and a zeal for our faith. We'll leave behind the idols of our culture, idols of being self-sufficient, of amassing wealth and status. And in the and in the midst of the holy people, money, sex, and power will operate very differently. We'll serve one another with humility and joy. We will be advocates for justice. We will be a holy people standing against racism and exploitation and environmental destruction. All who enter our doors will be accepted and loved. We will pay it, display humility, a humility that demonstrates that we too fall short of the radical love of Jesus and we too make mistakes. And so we will not act like we are better than our neighbor. This is a time where we really need holy faith communities to work together. But this can only happen as we gain a vision of God and his holiness, a vision that captivates us and a vision that transforms us, a vision that moves us from looking inward to looking upward. And so I pray that for our community. I pray that we may devote ourselves to fully seeking God's holiness and to become individually and corporately all that we are created to be. Let's pray. So God, we, as we come before you in your holiness, we just want to confess that we are not a people who live up to your holiness, that we need your grace, we need your forgiveness, we need your love, and we need your power. We want to open our hearts to you. We want to open our hearts to your transforming power. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. We thank you that you are making us holy. And we pray, God, that as a church, we will display the characteristics of a holy people, that we will love each other well, that we will love you well, that we will love our neighbor well. We trust that your spirit will continue to uh, show us the places where we are failing, the places where we are failing to love and serve you, the places we're failing to be obedient. God, open our hearts to you. Amen. Let's respond in song together.
As we close this morning, I want to pray a prayer of the apostle found Paul found in 1 Thessalonians 3, slightly modified. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ clear a path for us as a community to meet together again. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus Christ comes with all his holy ones. Amen.